This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Recording by Nick Bulka. The Sea Wolf by Jack London, Chapter One. I scarcely know where to begin, though I sometimes facetiously place the cause of it all to Charlie Furiseth's credit. He kept a summer cottage in Mill Valley under the shadow of Mount Tamalpais, and never occupied it except when he loafed through the winter months and read Nietzsche and Schopenhauer to rest his brain. When summer came on, he elected to sweat out a hot and dusty existence in the city, and to toil incessantly. Had it not been my custom to run up to see him every Saturday afternoon, and to stop over till Monday morning, this particular January Monday morning would not have found me afloat on San Francisco Bay. Not but that I was afloat in a safe craft, for the Martinez was a new ferry steamer, 
making her fourth or fifth trip on the run between Sausalito and San Francisco. The danger lay in the heavy fog which blanketed the bay, and of which, as a landsman, I had little apprehension. In fact, I remember the placid exultation with which I took up my position on the forward upper deck, directly beneath the pilot house, and allowed the mystery of the fog to lay hold of my imagination. A fresh breeze was blowing, and for a time I was alone in the moist obscurity. Yet not alone, for I was dimly conscious of the presence of the pilot, and of what I took to be the captain, in the glass house above my head. I remember thinking how comfortable it was, this division of labor which made it unnecessary for me to study fogs, winds, tides, and navigation in order to visit my friend who lived across an arm of the sea. It was good that men should be specialists, I mused. The peculiar knowledge of the pilot and captain sufficed for many thousands of people who knew no more of the sea and navigation than I knew. On the other hand, instead of having to devote my energy to the learning of a multitude of things, I concentrated it upon a few particular things, such as, for instance, the analysis of Poe's place in American literature, an essay of mine, by the way, in the current Atlantic. Coming aboard, as I passed through the cabin, I had noticed with greedy eyes a stout gentleman reading the Atlantic which was open at my very essay. And there it was again, the division of labor, the special knowledge of the pilot and captain which permitted the stout gentleman to read my special knowledge on Poe while they carried him safely from Sausalito to San Francisco. A red-faced man slamming the cabin door behind him and stumping out on the deck interrupted my reflections though I made a mental note of the topic for use in a projected essay, which I had thought of calling The Necessity for Freedom, a plea for the artist. The red-faced man shot a glance up at the pilot house, gazed around at the fog, stumped across the deck and back, he evidently had artificial legs, and stood still by my side, legs wide apart and with an expression of keen enjoyment on his face. I was not wrong when I decided that his days had been spent on the sea. It's nasty weather like this here that turns heads gray before their time, he said, with a nod toward the pilot house. I had not thought there was any particular strain, I answered. It seems as simple as A, B, C. They know the direction by compass, the distance and the speed. I should not call it anything more than mathematical certainty. Strain, he snorted. Simple as ABC. Mathematical certainty. He seemed to brace himself up and lean backward against the air as he stared at me. How about this here tide that's rushing out through the Golden Gate? He demanded, or bellowed rather. How fast is she ebbing? What's the drift, huh? Listen to that, will you? A bell buoy, and we're atop of it. See him altering the course? From out of the fog came the mournful tolling of a bell, and I could see the pilot turning the wheel with great rapidity. 
The bell, which had seemed straight ahead, was now sounding from the side. Our own whistle was blowing hoarsely, and from time to time the sound of other whistles came to us from out of the fog. That's a ferry boat of some sort, the newcomer said, indicating a whistle off to the right. And there, do you hear that? Blown by mouth. Some scow schooner, most likely. Better watch out, Mr. Schooner Man. Ah, I thought so. Now hell's a poppin' for somebody. The unseen ferryboat was blowing blast after blast, and the mouth-blown horn was tooting in terror-stricken fashion. And now they're paying their respects to each other and trying to get clear, the red-faced man went on, as the hurried whistling ceased. His face was shining, his eyes flashing with excitement, as he translated into articulate language the speech of the horns and sirens. That's the steam siren a-going it over to the left, and you hear that fellow with a frog in his throat? A steam schooner, as near as I can judge, crawling in from the heads against the tide. A shrill little whistle, piping as if gone mad, came from directly ahead and from very near at hand. Gongs sounded on the Martinez. Our paddle wheels stopped, their pulsing beat died away, and then they started again. The shrill little whistle, like the chirping of a cricket amidst the cries of great beasts, shot through the fog from more to the side and swiftly grew fainter and fainter. I looked to my companion for enlightenment. One of them daredevil launches, he said. I almost wish we'd sunk him, the little rip. They're the cause of more trouble. And what good are they? Any jackass gets aboard one and runs it from hell to breakfast blowing his whistle to beat the band and telling the rest of the world to look out for him because he's coming and can't look out for himself because he's coming and you've got to look out too right of way common decency they don't know the meaning of it i felt quite amused at his unwarranted collar and while he stumped indignantly up and down i felt it dwelling upon the romance of the fog and romantic it certainly was. The fog, like the gray shadow of infinite mystery, brooding over the whirling speck of earth, and men, mere motes of light and sparkle, cursed with an insane relish for work, riding their steeds of wood and steel through the heart of the mystery, groping their way blindly through the unseen, and clamoring and clanging in confident speech while their hearts are heavy with incertitude and fear. The voice of my companion brought me back to myself with a laugh. I too had been groping and floundering, the while I thought I rode clear-eyed through the mystery. Hello, somebody coming our way, he was saying. And do you hear that? He's coming fast, walking right along. Guess he don't hear us yet. Wind's in wrong direction. The fresh breeze was blowing right down upon us, and I could hear the whistle plainly, off to one side and a little ahead. Ferryboat? I asked. He nodded, then added, Or he wouldn't be keeping up such a clip. He gave a short chuckle. <laughs> They're getting anxious up there. I glanced up. The captain had thrust his head and shoulders out of the pilot house and was staring intently into the fog. <laughs> 
as if though by sheer force of will he could penetrate it. His face was anxious, as was the face of my companion, who had stumped over to the rail and was gazing with a like intentness in the direction of the invisible danger. Then everything happened, and with inconceivable rapidity. The fog seemed to break away as though split by a wedge, and the bow of a steamboat emerged, trailing fog wreaths on either side like seaweed on the snout of Leviathan. I could see the pilot house and a white-bearded man leaning partly out of it on his elbows. He was clad in a blue uniform, and I remember noting how trim and quiet he was. His quietness under the circumstances was terrible. He accepted destiny, marched hand in hand with it, and coolly measured the stroke. As he leaned there, he ran a calm and speculative eye over us as though to determine the precise point of the collision, and took no notice whatever, when our pilot, white with rage, shouted, Now you've done it! On looking back, I realized that the remark was too obvious to make rejoinder necessary. Grab hold of something and hang on, the red-faced man said to me. All his bluster had gone, and he seemed to have caught the contagion of preternatural calm. And listen to the women scream! He said grimly, almost bitterly, I thought, as though he had been through the experience before. The vessels came together before I could follow his advice. We must have been struck squarely amidships, for I saw nothing, the strange steamboat having passed beyond my line of vision. The Martinez heeled over sharply, and there was a crashing and rending of timber. I was thrown flat on the wet deck, and before I could scramble to my feet, I heard the scream of the woman. This it was, I am certain, the most indescribable of blood-curdling sounds that threw me into a panic. I remembered the life preservers stored in the cabin, but was met at the door and swept backwards by a wild rush of men and women. What happened in the next few minutes, I do not recollect though I have a clear remembrance of pulling down life preservers from the overhead racks while the red-faced man fastened them about the bodies of an hysterical group of women. This memory is as distinct and sharp as that of any picture I have seen. It is a picture, and I can see it now. The jagged edges of the hole in the side of the cabin, through which the gray fog swirled and eddied, the empty, upholstered seats littered with all the evidences of sudden flight, such as packages, hand satchels, umbrellas, and wraps. The stout gentleman, who had been reading my essay, encased in cork and canvas, the magazine still in his hand, and asking me with monotonous insistence if I thought there was any danger. The red-faced man, stumping gallantly around on his artificial legs and buckling life preservers on all comers. And finally, the screaming bedlam of women. This it was, the screaming of the women, that most tried my nerves. It must have tried, too, the nerves of the red-faced man, for I have another picture which will never fade from my the stout gentleman is stuffing the magazine into his overcoat pocket and looking on curiously. A tangled mass of women with drawn white faces and open mouths is shrieking like a chorus of lost souls, 
and the red-faced man, his face now purplish with wrath, with his arms extended overhead as in the act of hurling thunderbolts, is shouting, Shut up! Oh, shut up! I remembered the scene impelled me to sudden laughter, and in the next instant I realized I was becoming hysterical myself. For these were women of my own kind, like my mother and sisters, with the fear of death upon them and unwilling to die and I remember that the sounds they made reminded me of the squealing of pigs under the knife of the butcher, and I was struck with horror at the vividness of the analogy. These women, capable of the most sublime emotions, of the tenderest sympathies, were open-mouthed and screaming. They wanted to live. They were helpless like rats in a trap, and they screamed. The horror of it drove me out on deck. I was feeling sick and squeamish and sat down on a bench. In a hazy way, I saw and heard men rushing and shouting as they strove to lower the boats. It was just as I had read descriptions of such scenes in books. The tackles jammed. Nothing worked. One boat lowered away with the plugs out, filled with women and children, and then with water, and capsized. Another boat had been lowered by one end and still hung in the tackle by the other end where it had been abandoned. Nothing was to be seen of the strange steamboat which had caused the disaster, though I heard men saying she would undoubtedly send boats to our assistance. I descended to the lower deck. The Martinez was sinking fast, for the water was very near. Numbers of the passengers were leaping overboard, others in the water were clamoring to be taken aboard again. No one heeded them. A cry arose that we were sinking. I was seized by the consequent panic and went over the side in a surge of bodies. How I went over I do not know, though I did know and instantly why those in the water were so desirous of getting back on the steamer. The water was cold, so cold that it was painful. The pang as I plunged into it was as quick and sharp as that of fire. It bit to the marrow. It was like the grip of death. I gasped with the anguish and shock of it, filling my lungs before the life preserver popped me to the surface. The taste of the salt was strong in my mouth, and I was strangling with the acrid stuff in my throat and lungs. But it was the cold that was most distressing. I felt that I could survive but a few minutes. People were struggling and floundering in the water about me. I could hear them crying out to one another, and I heard also the sound of oars. Evidently, the strange steamboat had lowered its boats. As the time went by, I marveled that I was still alive. I had no sensation whatever in my lower limbs, while a chilling numbness was wrapping about my heart and creeping into it. Small waves with spiteful foaming crests continually broke over me and into my mouth, sending me off into more strangling paroxysms. The noises grew indistinct, though I heard a final and despairing chorus of screams in the distance and knew that the Martinez had gone down. Later, how much later I have no knowledge, I came to myself with a start of fear. I was alone. I could hear no calls or cries, 
only the sound of the waves, made weirdly hollow and reverberant by the fog. A panic in a crowd, which partakes of a sort of community of interest, is not so terrible as a panic when one is by oneself, and such a panic I now suffered. Whither was I drifting? The red-faced man had said that the tide was ebbing through the Golden Gate. Was I then being carried out to sea? And the life preserver in which I floated, was it not liable to go to pieces at any moment? I had heard of such things being made of paper and hollow rushes which quickly became saturated and lost all buoyancy, and I could not swim a stroke. And I was alone, floating apparently in the midst of a great primordial vastness. I confess that a madness seized me, that I shrieked aloud as the women had shrieked and beat the water with my numb hands. How long this lasted I have no conception for a blankness intervened of which I remember no more than one remembers of troubled and painful sleep. When I aroused it was as after centuries of time, and I saw almost above me and emerging from the fog the bow of a vessel, and three triangular sails each shrewdly lapping the other and filled with wind. Where the bow cut the water there was a great foaming and gurgling, and I seemed directly in its path. I tried to cry out, but was too exhausted. The bow plunged down, just missing me, and sending a swash of water clear over my head. Then the long black side of the vessel began slipping past, so near that I could have touched it with my hands. I tried to reach it, in a mad resolve to claw into the wood with my nails, but my arms were heavy and lifeless. Again I strove to call out, but made no sound. The stern of the vessel shot by, dropping, as it did so, into a hollow between the waves, and I caught a glimpse of a man standing at the wheel, and of another man, who seemed to be doing little else than smoke a cigar. I saw the smoke issuing from his lips as he slowly turned his head and glanced out over the water in my direction. It was a careless, unpremeditated glance, one of those haphazard things men do when they have no immediate call to do anything in particular, but act because they are alive and must do something. But life and death were in that glance. I could see the vessel being swallowed up in the fog. I saw the back of the man at the wheel, and the head of the other man turning, slowly turning, as his gaze struck the water and casually lifted along it toward me. His face wore an absent expression, as of deep thought, and I became afraid that if his eyes did light upon me, he would nevertheless not see me. But his eyes did light upon me, and looked squarely into mine, and he did see me, for he sprang to the wheel, thrusting the other man aside, and whirled it round and round, hand over hand, at the same time shouting orders of some sort. The vessel seemed to go off at a tangent to its former course, and leapt almost instantly from view into the fog. I felt myself slipping into unconsciousness, and tried with all the power of my will to fight above the suffocating blankness and darkness that was rising around me. A little later, I heard the stroke of oars growing nearer and nearer, and the calls of a man. 
When he was very near, I heard him crying in vexed fashion, Why in hell don't you sing out? This meant me, my thought. And then the blankness and darkness rose over me. End of chapter one. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter two. I seemed swinging in a mighty rhythm through orbit fastness. Sparkling points of light spluttered and shot past me. They were stars I knew, and flaring comets that peopled my flight among the suns. As I reached the limit of my swing and prepared to rush back on the counterswing, a great gong struck and thundered. For an immeasurable period, lapped in the rippling of placid centuries, I enjoyed and pondered my tremendous flight. But a change came over the face of the dream, for a dream I told myself it must be. My rhythm grew shorter and shorter. I was jerked from swing to counter-swing with irritating haste. I could scarcely catch my breath, so fiercely was I impelled through the heavens. The gong thundered more frequently and more furiously. I grew to await it with a nameless dread. Then it seemed as though I were being dragged over rasping sands, white and hot in the sun. This gave place to a sense of intolerable anguish. My skin was scorching in the torment of fire. The gong clanged and knelt. The sparkling points of light flashed past me in an interminable stream as though the whole sidereal system were dropping into the void. I gasped, caught my breath painfully, and opened my eyes. Two men were kneeling beside me, working over me. My mighty rhythm was the rift and forward plunge of a ship on the sea. The terrific gong was a frying pan hanging on the wall that rattled and clattered with each leap of the ship. The rasping, scorching sands were a man's hard hands chafing my naked chest. I squirmed under the pain of it and half-lifted my head. My chest was raw and red, and I could see tiny blood globules starting through the torn and inflamed cuticle. That'll do, Janssen, one of the men said. Can't you see? You bloomin' well rubbed all the gent's skin off. The man addressed as Janssen, a man of the heavy Scandinavian type, ceased chafing me and arose awkwardly to his feet. The man who had spoken to him was clearly a cockney, with the clean lines and weakly pretty, almost effeminate face of the man who has absorbed the sound of bow-bells with his mother's milk. A draggled muslin cap on his head and a dirty gunny sack about his slim hips proclaimed him cook of the decidedly dirty ship's galley in which I found myself. And how you feeling now, sir? he asked with a subservient smirk which comes only of generations of tip-seeking ancestors. For reply, I twisted weakly into a sitting posture and was helped by Janssen to my feet. The rattle and bang of the frying pan was grating horribly on my nerves. I could not collect my thoughts. 
clutching the woodwork of the galley for support, and I confess the grease with which it was scummed put my teeth on edge, I reached across a hot cooking range to the offending utensil, unhooked it, and wedged it securely into the coal box. The cook grinned at my exhibition of nerves, and thrust into my hand a steaming mug with an, Eh, this'll do you good. It was a nauseous mess, ship's coffee, but the heat of it was reviving. Between gulps of the molten stuff, I glanced down at my raw and bleeding chest and turned to the Scandinavian. Thank you, Mr. Janssen, I said, but don't you think your measures were rather heroic? It was because he understood the reproof of my action rather than of my words that he held up his palm for inspection. It was remarkably calloused. I passed my hand over the horny projections, and my teeth went on edge once more from the horrible rasping sensation produced. My name is Johnson, not Janssen, he said, in very good, though slow English, with no more than a shade of accent to it. There was mild protest in his pale blue eyes, and withal a timid frankness and manliness that quite won me to him. Thank you, Mr. Johnson, I corrected, and reached out my hand for his. He hesitated, awkward and bashful, shifted his weight from one leg to the other, then blunderingly gripped my hand in a hearty shake. Have you any dry clothes I may put on? I asked the cook. Yes, sir, he answered with cheerful alacrity. I'll run down and take a look over my kit. If you have no objection, sir, to wearing me things. He dived out the galley door, or glided rather, with a swiftness and smoothness of gait that struck me as being not so much cat-like as oily. In fact, this oiliness or greasiness, as I was later to learn, was probably the most salient expression of his personality. And where am I? I asked Johnson whom I took, and rightly, to be one of the sailors. What vessel is this, and where is she bound? Off the Farallones, heading about southwest, he answered, slowly and methodically, as though groping for his best English, and rigidly observing the order of my queries. The schooner Ghost bound seal-hunting to Japan. And who is the captain? I must see him as soon as I am dressed. Johnson looked puzzled and embarrassed. He hesitated while he groped in his vocabulary and framed a complete answer. The captain is Wolf Larsen, or so men call him. I never heard his other name. But you better speak soft with him. He is mad this morning. The mate... But he did not finish. The cook had glided in. Better sling your hook out of here, Janssen, he said. The old man'll be wantin' you on deck, and this ain't no day to fall foul of him. Johnson turned obediently to the door, at the same time over the cook's shoulder, favoring me with an amazingly solemn and portentous wink, as though to emphasize his interrupted remark and the need for me to be soft-spoken with the captain. Hanging over the cook's arm was a loose and crumpled array of evil-looking and sour-smelling 
garments. Day was put away wet, sir, he vouchsafed explanation. But you'll have to make them do till I dry yours out by the fire. Clinging to the woodwork, staggering with the roll of the ship, and aided by the cook, I managed to slip into a rough woolen undershirt. On the instant, my flesh was creeping and crawling from the harsh contact. He noticed my involuntary twitching and grimacing, and smirked. I only hope you don't ever have to get used to such as that in this life, cause you've got a bloomin' soft skin, that you have, more like a lady's than any I know of. I was bloomin' well sure you was a gentleman as soon as I set eyes on you. I had taken a dislike to him at first, and as he helped to dress me, this dislike increased. There was something repulsive about his touch. I shrank from his hand, my flesh revolted, and between this and the smells arising from various pots boiling and bubbling on the galley fire, I was in haste to get out into the fresh air. Further, there was the need of seeing the captain about what arrangements could be made for getting me ashore. A cheap cotton shirt with frayed collar and a bosom discolored with what I took to be ancient bloodstains was put on me, amid a running and apologetic fire of comment. A pair of workmen's brogans encased my feet, and for trousers I was furnished with a pair of pale blue washed-out overalls, one leg of which was fully ten inches shorter than the other. The abbreviated leg looked as though the devil had there clutched for the cockney's soul and missed the shadow for the substance. And whom have I to thank for this kindness? I asked, when I stood completely arrayed, a tiny boy's cap on my head and for coat, a dirty striped cotton jacket which ended at the small of my back and the sleeves of which reached just below my elbows. The cook drew himself up in a smugly humble fashion, a deprecating smirk on his face. Out of my experience with stewards on the Atlantic liners at the end of the voyage, I could have sworn he was waiting for his tip. From my fuller knowledge of the creature, I now know that the posture was unconscious. An hereditary servility, no doubt, was responsible. Muggridge, sir! He fawned, his effeminate features running into a greasy smile. Thomas Mugridge, sir, at your service. All right, Thomas, I said. I shall not forget you when my clothes are dry. A soft light suffused his face and his eyes glistened, as though somewhere in the deeps of his being his ancestors had quickened and stirred with dim memories of tips received in former lives. Thank you, sir, he said very gratefully and very humbly indeed. Precisely in the way that the door slid back, he slid aside, and I stepped out on deck. I was still weak from my prolonged immersion. A puff of wind caught me, and I staggered across the moving deck to a corner of the cabin to which I clung for support. The schooner, heeled over far out from the perpendicular, was bowing and plunging into the long Pacific roll. 
If she were heading southwest, as Johnson had said, the wind then, I calculated, was blowing nearly from the south. The fog was gone, and in its place the sun sparkled crisply on the surface of the water. I turned to the east, where I knew California must lie, but could see nothing save low-lying fog banks. The same fog, doubtless, that had brought about the disaster to the Martinez and placed me in my present situation. To the north, and not far away, a group of naked rocks thrust above the sea, on one of which I could distinguish a lighthouse. In the southwest, and almost in our course, I saw the pyramidal loom of some vessel's sails. Having completed my survey of the horizon, I turned to my more immediate surroundings. My first thought was that a man who had come through a collision and rubbed shoulders with death merited more attention than I received. Beyond a sailor at the wheel who stared curiously across the top of the cabin, I attracted no notice whatever. Everybody seemed interested in what was going on amidships. There, on a hatch, a large man was lying on his back. He was fully clothed, though his shirt was ripped open in front. Nothing was to be seen of his chest, however, for it was covered with a mass of black hair in appearance like the furry coat of a dog. His face and neck were hidden beneath a black beard, intershot with gray, which would have been stiff and bushy had it not been limp and draggled and dripping with water. His eyes were closed, and he was apparently unconscious, but his mouth was wide open, his breast heaving as though from suffocation as he labored noisily for breath. A sailor, from time to time, and quite methodically, as a matter of routine, dropped a canvas bucket into the ocean at the end of a rope, hauled it in, hand under hand, and sluiced its contents over the prostrate man. Pacing back and forth the length of the hatchways, and savagely chewing the end of a cigar, was the man whose casual glance had rescued me from the sea. His height was probably five feet ten inches, or ten and a half. But my first impression, or feel, of the man was not of this, but of his strength. And yet, while he was of massive build, with broad shoulders and deep chest, I could not characterize his strength as massive. It was what might be termed a sinewy, knotty strength, of the kind we ascribe to lean and wiry men, but which, in him, because of his heavy build, partook more of the enlarged gorilla order. Not that in appearance he seemed in the least gorilla-like. What I am striving to express is this strength itself, more as a thing apart from his physical semblance. It was a strength we are wont to associate with things primitive, with wild animals, and the creatures we imagine our tree-dwelling prototypes to have been. A strength savage, ferocious, alive in itself, the essence of life, in that it is the potency of motion, the elemental stuff itself, out of which the many forms of life have been molded. In short, that which writhes in the body of a snake when the head is cut off, and the snake, as a snake, is dead, or which lingers in the shapeless lump of turtle meat and recoils and quivers from the prime of the finger. Such was the impression of strength I gathered from this man who paced up and down. 
He was firmly planted on his legs. His feet struck the deck squarely and with surety. Every movement of a muscle, from the heave of the shoulders to the tightening of the lips about the cigar, was decisive and seemed to come out of a strength that was excessive and overwhelming. In fact, though this strength pervaded every action of his, it seemed but the advertisement of a greater strength that lurked within, that lay dormant and no more than stirred from time to time, but which might arouse at any moment terrible and compelling, like the rage of a lion or the wrath of a storm. The cook stuck his head out of the galley door and grinned encouragingly at me, at the same time jerking his thumb in the direction of the man who paced up and down by the hatchway. Thus I was given to understand that he was the captain, the old man in the cook's vernacular, the individual whom I must interview and put to the trouble of somehow getting me ashore. I had half started forward to get over with what I was certain would be a stormy five minutes, when a more violent, suffocating paroxysm seized the unfortunate person who was lying on his back. He wrenched and writhed about convulsively. The chin with the damp black beard pointed higher in the air as the back muscles stiffened and the chest swelled in an unconscious and instinctive effort to get more air. Under the whiskers and all unseen, I knew that the skin was taking on a purplish hue. The captain, or Wolf Larsen, as men called him, ceased pacing and gazed down at the dying man. So fierce had this final struggle become that the sailor paused in the act of flinging more water over him and stared curiously, the canvas bucket partly tilted and dripping its contents to the deck. The dying man beat a tattoo on the hatch with his heels, straightened out his legs, and stiffened in one great tense effort and rolled his head from side to side. Then the muscles relaxed, the head stopped rolling, and a sigh as of profound relief floated upward from his lips. The jaw dropped, the upper lip lifted, and two rows of tobacco-discolored teeth it seemed as though his features had frozen into a diabolical grin at the world he had left and outwitted. Then a most surprising thing occurred. The captain broke loose upon the dead man like a thunderclap. Oaths rolled from his lips in a continuous stream, and they were not namby-pamby oaths or mere expressions of indecency. Each word was a blasphemy, and there were many words. They crisped and crackled like electric sparks. I had never heard anything like it in my life, nor could I have conceived it possible. With a turn for literary expression myself, and a penchant for forcible figures and phrases, I appreciated as no other listener, I dare say, the peculiar vividness and strength and absolute blasphemy of his metaphors. The cause of it all, as near as I could make out, was that the man, who was mate, had gone on a debauch before leaving San Francisco, and then had the poor taste to die at the beginning of the voyage and leave Wolf Larsen shorthanded. It should be unnecessary to state, at least to my friends, that I was shocked. Oaths and vile language of any sort had always been repellent to me. I felt a wilting sensation, a sinking at the heart. 
and, as I might just as well say, a giddiness. To me, death had always been invested with solemnity and dignity. It had been peaceful in its occurrence, sacred in its ceremonial. But death in its more sordid and terrible aspects was a thing with which I had been unacquainted till now. As I say, while I appreciated the power of the terrific denunciation that swept out of Wolf Larsen's mouth, I was inexpressibly shocked. The scorching torrent was enough to wither the face of the corpse. I should not have been surprised if the wet black beard had frizzled and curled and flared up in smoke and flame. But the dead man was unconcerned. He continued to grin with a sardonic humor, with a cynical mockery and defiance. He was master of the situation. End of chapter 2